Well, open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12. As we go through the book of 1 Timothy, we're learning as a church what we're supposed to fight for. Uh, Yeah, this is a book of the Bible that's telling Christians to fight. You know, we're supposed to fight about certain things. One of my favorite parts of hockey is the fights. Did you see the Hawks last night? They're advancing. All right, isn't that great? The fights are the best, though, right? Hockey fights are the baseball fights. Come on, they don't want to hurt their hands. They all run on the field, and they just basically, like, hold each other back. They don't do anything, right? Football, what's the point? They got the face masks on. They can't really hurt each other. Uh, basketball, they fake it. They're, I mean, they're a bunch of fakers. They flop, and they pretend to get hurt, but they don't really hurt each other. Hockey, gloves off, and they start swinging. We got some pictures of Hawk fights from yesteryear. Pow! Right in the kisser. Love it. Hockey players know how to fight. You know, it doesn't matter. You could fight. You could pull the other guy's jersey over his head. What, anything goes in a hockey fight. Take him down to the ice, get on top of him. As long as the refs are letting it go, it is a fight. Well, you might be surprised to hear that God wants his church to learn how to fight. But it's the good fight that he wants us to get on board with. The truth is this. Faith is going to be something we must fight for. Uh, Faith is something that we are going to have to drop our gloves and start swinging to protect. The message is called Fight the Good Fight. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, it says just that. Fight the good fight of the faith. This message really has the same point reworded three times, right? So uh, repetition is a huge part of teaching. Repetition is a huge part of parenting. As every parent knows, you've got to say the same thing multiple times. Uh, they don't get it the first time, am I right? So this is the same thing being said in three different ways. You can write this down in your notes. The first thing is just that. Fight for the true faith in the church. Fight for it. It says the good fight. What is the faith, first of all? If we're supposed to be fighting for the faith, what is it? Faith means beliefs and behaviors consistent with the truth of Christ. It is beliefs. We are going to have to fight to maintain what it is that we're teaching. But it is behaviors. We're going to have to fight to make sure that our behavior is in line with the gospel. It's our creed and it's our conduct. And it's a fight. Faith is a fight. The word for fight is agonize. If you look at the original Greek, we get our word for agony from this Greek. We're agonized. We're supposed to exert ourselves to the point of agony for the faith. Check this out. This is an agonizing face on a guy who's trying to lift way too much weight. Like, he should probably pick another career. He doesn't look like he's having fun. But that face, take that face. That's what this word means. That's supposed to be the look on your face when you're trying to Fight for the faith. But it's the good fight. And it will be a fight. John MacArthur says this, when a person becomes a Christian, that person is then and there declaring war on hell. And hell fights back. You'll have to fight for your marriage. You'll have to fight for your family. You'll have to fight for this church. Because hell fights back. It will be a battle. And if you're not prepared and willing and ready to fight, You're going to lose. Many churches are not willing to fight. In many churches, they're not willing to fight against things that can diminish the gospel in their midst. Many churches are willing to fight, but it's not the good fight that they're fighting. It's the bad fight. It's about non-essentials or gray areas or foolish controversies. The good fight 
manifests itself when people try to bring false doctrine into the church. It can be a person or it can be a teacher, a pastor, an author, but someone brings a teaching that is not consistent with the gospel of Christ. And the church needs to decide, are we going to fight against this or are we going to just let this be taught here when someone tries to change the message? Somebody might try to change discipleship, so they would bring false discipleship to the church. Maybe they've got the truth all right and their teaching is good, but they just start changing what a disciple is or what a disciple should focus on or how a disciple should grow. Here at Harvest, we try and keep it simple. Worship Christ, walk with Christ, work for Christ. You'd be surprised, though, at how frequently we feel pushback on our definition of a disciple. Worship Christ? Oh, I don't know if people should be worshiping Christ the way that you worship Christ. Walk with Christ? You mean you actually expect Christians to be growing and bearing fruit? I don't think you should be insisting on that. Sounds like you're adding works to salvation. Work for Christ? What, you actually want me to serve on a ministry team? You know, we don't have time for that. We constantly are feeling pushback against our discipleship model. We're going to have to fight for it. The good fight comes when somebody brings false doctrine into the church, when somebody brings false discipleship into the church, or when someone just divides the church over silly things. People will try and divide good people in the church. And that's when the church has to decide if it's going to rise up and fight against division and win the war for peace in the church. Hey, are you fighting for the true faith? Are you fighting against it? The church will have to fight. Some churches value peace and love. Well, we just don't want to ruffle any feathers. We don't want to, you know, we're just not going to really get involved in any of that stuff. And as a result, they let people believe whatever they want. And they let people teach whatever they want because they've lost the fight. Or they let people live however they want because they won't challenge anyone on their way of life. Or they let anyone say anything about anyone and cause division and the church doesn't step in and say, hey, you can't divide people in this church. We need to bring about some fix here. Some churches just don't fight. They don't fight. And so they lose. We have to fight the true, for the true faith in the church. And it will be a battle. The second thing, which is really just a different way of saying the first thing is this. It goes on to say, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So we're going to fight for it, gloves off, and then we're going to take hold of it so that nobody can take it away from us. The point is it's being threatened and we're holding on. So write this down. Tighten your grip on the truth. Fight for the true faith in the church and tighten your grip on the truth. We're struggling to keep our grip on the truth. This implies that there was a point in your past when you actually took hold of it for the first time. And I hope you have. Is there a time in your past when you for the first time took hold of the free gift of eternal life? Where you heard the truth that God was forgiving our sins in Jesus Christ. You understood it was a gift handed to you free. You couldn't earn it. And you reached out and took hold hold of eternal life for the first time. If you've never reached out and taken hold of it, you can't protect it because it's not yours yet. The assumption here is that at some point in your life, you did grab it and now you're holding on to it with a white knuckle grip so that no one can take it away from you. We fight for it and then we hold on to it tightly. Many times people start to loosen their grip on the truth though. I always love meeting our uh, friends from Various colleges in the area, many from Trinity down the street, 
And I'm so proud when I hear about some students who say things like, I want these four years to be my greatest years of spiritual growth yet. Fires me up. You know, CSP works through college students who have a heart for doing something awesome in their years away. And, you know, we don't have people at this point at Trinity who are leading the charge with CSP. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I want to do something amazing. Hey, how about you get assigned to a local high school with 2,000 students who need to hear the gospel and you lead the charge? Because that can happen. It's awesome when I see college students tightening their grip on the truth. And it's sad when I see college students who are like, finally, I get to some peace and quiet from my parents who've been force-feeding me this truth, and they start to loosen their grip on the truth. What does that mean? It means they start to rethink what their convictions are. It means they start to redefine who Jesus is or what the Bible teaches. It means they start to dialogue about black and white sin areas in the Bible and start turning them gray. That's what it means to loosen your grip. We're supposed to lay hold of it and hold on to it tightly, though. This is a call for us to tighten the grip. My kids watch SpongeBob. Do any of your kids watch SpongeBob? SpongeBob. Okay, good. A couple of hands went up there. Yes! <laughs> and there's this one episode they've probably seen a hundred times, but one of SpongeBob's favorite things to do is to go jellyfishing, right? So they decide to take Squidward jellyfishing. The problem is he's in a full-body cast because he, so he can't move. So Patrick decides to tell Squidward how to jellyfish, and he brings him a net, and he holds it out, and he says, Firmly grasp it in your hand. Only Squidward, his hand is covered with a cast. So Patrick gets irritated, and he says, Firmly grasp it! And he doesn't grab onto it, so Patrick finally smashes it through the cast and says, Firmly grasp it! And Squidward's like, Rah! My kids love that part. I watch it because they watch it. basically what the Bible is saying to you and me here. Firmly grasp it in your hand. Firmly grasp it. Don't let it go. Don't loosen your grip. Don't distance yourself from the truth that you've been given. Tighten up. And the Bible gives us reasons why it's time to take hold of the eternal life to which we were called. Write this down. Because it's the way to eternal life. The truth of Christ is the way to eternal life. What is eternal life? Uh, Eternal life starts now by knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and and the life. He is the life. The life is a person. It revolutionizes your view of truth when you realize that truth is not personal, truth is a person. It revolutionizes your view of life when you realize life is a person too. Knowing Christ is eternal life. You can know that eternal life now. Some people spend their whole life going through religious hoops and and acting out different various things, thinking that one day they'll get to eternal life in heaven. Eternal life is now when you know Jesus Christ personally. Right here, right now. Jesus is the way to eternal life here, but he does say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So he will take us to eternal life forever. When we understand that the truth is the way to eternal life, we will cling to it as a church Tightly, and we won't let it go because we know the consequences of loosening our grip. 1 Timothy 1.16 says this, But I received mercy for this reason, Paul says, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe on him, get this, for eternal life. The truth of Christ is the only way that sinners can find eternal life. And the church that starts to undermine 
or rethink or redefine the truth of Christ is preventing people from finding the only way to eternal life. All right? It, you're, the, the church that does away with the truth of Christ is throwing the lifeboats off the side of the Titanic. And the iceberg is, is dead ahead. Destruction awaits that church. And whatever else they're teaching, they can't save anyone with it unless it's the truth of Christ. Hey, if you and I, if we believe and embrace that Christ is the only way for anyone to get saved, we will hold on to that truth. We will share only that truth. And we will never let anyone change that truth or do away with it in our church. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we have to tighten our grip on the truth. It's the only way to eternal life. Write this down. Why else? Well, because God called you to Christ. Why would we tighten our grip on this truth? Because God's calling us to this truth, to Christ. It goes on to say, take, verse 12, are you there? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. But do you see how you can read past where it says, to which you were called? God called you to eternal life in his Son. This is wading out into the, the doctrine of how we get saved, soteriology. And you have to understand that God called you unto salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. If God never called you to his son, you would never have been saved. If God sat passively in a recliner chair, watching to see what you would do, if he took no initiative, you would never have been saved. You can't save yourself. Doesn't matter how badly you want it. Doesn't matter how much you believe it. If God didn't take initiative, you wouldn't even be interested. God went to work in the world. And he started coming against the spirit of rebellion. He started driving away the enemy. He overcame death. He made a way. God took initiative and called you unto salvation. And if God didn't take initiative, you wouldn't have been saved because salvation is from the Lord. But understand that God is calling us to his Son. God is calling us to his Son. And that's the only way that anyone can be saved is when God calls us out of darkness into his light. It's important to understand God is not passive in the process of salvation. He's not sitting back wondering, hoping that you'll one day respond. Oh, did they respond yet? He's not passive. His will is active. He's driving you to the truth of Christ. He's calling you out of darkness. The NFL draft is coming up, right? In Chicago. You going to go? All these athletes wanting to go pro, waiting for the call. Are they going to call? Are they going to call? Looking at the phone. Am I going to get a call? Am I going in? Am I going to be there? If they get a call, they're in. God called your name. God called you out of darkness into the kingdom of his son. You couldn't do that to yourself. He did that. How can we let go of the truth of Christ when God is calling us to his son? If God is calling sinners to the Savior Jesus Christ and the church starts calling them to any other truth, the church is trying to drown out the voice of Almighty God. God is calling us to Christ. He commands us to call others to Christ. We need to be in line with His plan. Tighten your grip on the truth because it's the way to eternal life. Because God called you to Christ. Here's the next one. Because you confessed faith in Christ. So, we talked about God's role in salvation. He has the supreme primary role. He initiates. But, you have a role too. 
You see, your will is not passive when God calls. God doesn't start turning you into a puppet like Pinocchio, making decisions for you. He calls you to Christ. You must respond through repentance, and then you profess your faith in Christ. Faith is something God works in you, but faith is also something God demands from you. So you don't just sit passive, oh, I don't know when God's going to save me. It'll happen when it happens. He demands, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He demands that you respond to the truth that you hear. And you are on the hook. You are personally responsible for what you do with the truth of Christ that you hear. So we talked about the God side and the man side. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Both are active in the process of salvation. And here, the Bible seems to look back to when Timothy first confessed his faith in Christ. Uh, Some scholars say this maybe was uh, referring back to when Timothy actually uh, entered into ministry, but it says here, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does that mean? Is he making this good confession of uh, going into ministry or accepting a calling? My opinion is it sounds like it's more looking back to when he first professed that he was a Christian and he was baptized and he just declared publicly that he was a follower of Christ. Paul's reminding him, you received Christ. You repented of your sins. You publicly announced that Christ is your Lord and your King. Hold on to that. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe something is causing you to loosen your grip on the truth that you've been professing for years. Maybe someone is causing you or tempting you to loosen your grip on the truth that you have clung tightly to for years. And maybe God's saying to you this morning, hold tightly. Don't let anyone pry that out of your hands because you profess Christ. Have you gone public? Have you professed your faith? Have you been baptized? This shows that the crisis of faith is over and you've actually taken hold of it. And now it's awesome to see our high school students not only holding on to their faith but trying to share it with others. It's so encouraging. Last night, CSP had their celebration night. So uh, we got together at a church up north and we heard from high school students at Shepherd and Richards um, and some uh, were there from, from Inglewood and we had some there from Rolling Meadows I was so encouraged when one girl, high schooler from Inglewood, got up. She was telling about starting a club in her high school. And she said, yeah, I remember when we met the first time I prayed ever in my high school. And she said, I'm a shy person. And I decided to pray out loud in my high school. And she said, right then and there, I told myself, okay, I'm going to be the weird Christian kid. She had to gather up the courage to pray in front of Christians in her high school. And now they've got people coming who are not Christians to hear the gospel. But it started when she held tightly and said, hey, this is my truth. This is my God. It's amazing to celebrate that in just two years, CSP has helped Chicago high schools uh, to to bring the gospel to over 5,000 high school students. Two years, over 5,000 high school students have heard the gospel. Over 700 have indicated that they've become Christians through these rallies in two years blowing me away. But it wouldn't happen if the high schoolers were letting go of the faith. It wouldn't happen if they were holding loosely, oh, maybe they need to hear the truth, maybe not. Who knows? wouldn't happen. We have to fight for the true faith in the church. We have to tighten our grip on the truth 
It's the way to eternal life. God's calling us to Christ. and We confessed our faith in Christ. There's a third thing we have to do here, and it's, again, it's a restatement of the same thing. Fight for it, tighten your grip, and number three, guard the gospel. See how it's kind of the same thing? Fight for it, hold on to it, don't let anybody take it from you, and then guard it. Same thing. Guard the gospel. It says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. So the Apostle Paul is trying to motivate Pastor Timothy. All right? You an older man? You ever try and motivate a younger man? Well, here's how he's motivating him. I charge you. This is like courtroom language, like putting him under oath. You watch courtroom drama? Do you like the courtroom shows? Judge Wapner's the best. People's Court. He was my favorite growing up. Rusty, the bailiff, all rise. You see it? Some of you saw it. I love this imagery. Timothy, I charge you in, who's in the courtroom? In the presence of God. It's like God's on the bench. Who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus. He's there too. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment. Man, you get the feeling that Timothy is struggling to stay in the fight. There's false teachers. There's people causing problems. There's great need among the people in the church. He's tempted to just give up. Paul's like, how do I motivate him? He's like, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. They are looking to keep the commandment. The word keep means to watch over or protect. It doesn't mean like keep it in your pocket. It mean, it's not just to like have it. It's like to guard it, to keep it, uh, to embrace it as something that needs to be guarded and watched over. The commandment, uh, that phrase in the New Testament can look back to commandments from the Old Testament, but it also can be used just to describe generally our faith, like the faith, meaning our teachings and our way of life in Christ. And that's the sense it's used here. 2 Peter 3, 2 uses it that way where it says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Jesus' teachings overall here are just called the commandment and they were given to the apostles to spread to all the different churches. So that's what it means here. It just means the gospel. Guard the gospel. Guard the commandment. When I think of like watching over something or patrolling over something i think of like a security guard you know and i know a couple famous security guards in our country do you want to see a picture of a famous security guard here's one of them this is paul blart specializes in mall security uh two documentaries have shown just how good he is at what he does security guard he's keeping the mall safe here's another one famous security guard this is uh yeah he specializes in museums uh, but this is larry daly of daily devices he watches over museums. When you think of guarding the gospel, think of like a security guard. It's not going so well for him. Uh, he's being thrown down. He's being torn apart by all these. But this is the idea God wants you to put in your head when it comes to the church and the gospel. We have to post a guard on it. We have to treat it as if it's a prized work of art that someone has to stand and watch over. Uh, imagine... Imagine that the church kind of has like this vault, this spiritual vault. And imagine in the vault is the most treasured possession in all of creation, the truth of Christ, the gospel, the riches of heaven. And we've got it in this vault, like the highest security possible, the thickest vault you could buy. 
with the best trained guards who could ever. That's supposed to be the way you think about it. Like, no one is getting in here to take this away from us. We're guarding it. We're protecting it. Many of you, though, have told me stories of churches you've been to in the past, churches that you spent years in, that did not guard the gospel. They failed to take care of the most treasured possession, the truth of Christ. And it was taken from them. And it started with the teachers and then spread down into the congregation and they no longer preach Christ. The vault has been robbed. They have nothing that is spiritually valuable that they're giving to people anymore. And that'll be this church if we're not careful. We have to guard the gospel or our vault will be robbed. Why? Why? Well, 1 Timothy 4.16 says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, persist in this for if you, by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We have to persist in it. This is the way we'll be saved. This is the way others will be saved. And here it says, keep watch over it, and it gives us reasons why. Why else? It says here, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. So write this down. Guard the gospel because heaven is watching. Heaven is watching. God is watching what we do with the truth he handed to us from above. He's watching. And it's fascinating how God is described here. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. We don't know exactly why he picked that description. Why did he do that? Uh, Is it maybe because the picture is you're standing before the one who is giving you life right now to create this sense of authority and indebtedness, I charge you before God who gives life to all things. Maybe we're supposed to feel like we're being watched by this divine being who chose to open his hand and extend us life and even now is choosing to keep us alive. This is the being who's watching what we do with his truth. This is God who gives life to all things. It's humbling to think back to your own beginnings. There was a point in time when you were nothing. You didn't exist. You were nowhere. History was rolling on perfectly fine without you. All you were was a possible thought, a maybe, in the mind of an eternal being who had the power to give you life. And he chose to do it. Even when your parents decided to do it, it was God who ultimately decided to fuse you together, to assemble you in your mother's womb, to make you special. God chose to give you life. You're standing in his presence and he's looking to see what you're doing with the truth of his son. God who gives life to all things. We love movies about lifeless things coming to life, right? Can you think of some awesome movies about lifeless things coming to life? Check this out. This is the one lifeless thing coming to life. No more strings. Pinocchio, he's a little boy. He's a real boy. He's got life. A little more on the scary side. There's Frankenstein's monster, right? <laughs> Alive. My favorite is from the 80s. This is a machine, a robot, a war robot that was given life. Johnny Five. Did you see Short Circuit? Yeah. Awesome movie. We love movies about lifeless things coming to life. Hey, guess what? That's your story. You were a lifeless. God 
gave you life. It came from Him. That creates a sense of indebtedness to Him. Heaven is watching what we do with the truth of Christ. God the Father gave you life. He's watching to see what you do with the truth of His Son. He's watching to see what we do with the truth of His Son. And His Son is watching too. It says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Jesus is depicted here as the ideal witness, the one who would stand on trial because of the truth about himself and he would profess that faith and he would die for it. So this is encouraging Christians who are feeling hesitant to hold tightly to the faith and tell others about it. Jesus himself stood up on trial and told the truth about himself and it cost him his life. What was the first question Pilate asked Jesus in all four Gospels? Are you a king? What got Jesus killed? He claimed to be an eternal king from heaven who was sent to rule the world. He told Caiaphas, he told Annas on trial, I am the son of man. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 records that, the prophecy that Jesus was alluding to. It says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, that's Jesus. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, was presented before Him. To Him, Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which, he shall, not, which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is a king. He's a king over you and me. And He made this good confession on trial for His life and told the truth about Himself and was willing to die for it. We also are supposed to notice that Jesus is watching us and we're supposed to guard the gospel and share it with others even if it costs us. Guard the gospel. Why? Well, heaven is watching. Okay, how? How do we guard the gospel? Write this down. By protecting it from stain and sin. It goes on to say, Keep the commandment, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach. Unstained and free from reproach. Unstained means spotless. The gospel is like this brilliant, gleaming, white garment that, that has been purified and it's like, it's like glowing and there's not even a single spot on it. And we're supposed to keep it that way. We're suppo- you ever tell your kids, stop sliding around, I just washed those jeans. Right? Get out of the grass, those are new clothes. Imagine you just did a fresh load of laundry. And it's like your Sunday dresses and your favorite tops and, and new clothes and you... You get the laundry out, put it in the family room, and then you go to get yourself a cup of coffee. And then you come back, and your two-year-old is squirting maple syrup all over the laundry. Stained. Filthy. No longer clean. Churches can do that to the gospel. We can stain the gospel. We can make the gospel filthy. We can... With our teaching or with our actions, we can dirty it up. We're supposed to guard it from what? From sin or from corruption of teaching. It's got to be unstained. Uh, The gospel will be stained if the church allows sin to go unchallenged or false doctrine to spread. Unstained. We're protecting it from stain and sin. And then it says unstained and then it says free of reproach. Write this down. Protect it from stain and sin. Actually, don't write this down yet. This is still under the same point. Free of reproach means you can't grab onto a sin or an accusation. 
Free of reproach means you can't grasp onto something that the teacher or the congregation is doing wrong. It's just a blatant sin. Free of reproach means it's hard to tackle somebody. Check this out. This is a person who's hard to tackle in the NFL. It's Russell Wilson. And look at that poor, helpless Green Bay Packer who's trying to bring him down unsuccessfully. Look at how poised and strong and confident and Super Bowl bound is one player and how limp and lurching and (laughs) just being descriptive. (laughs) Above reproach means you can't tackle the person. It doesn't mean the person's like getting away with it. It means that there's not much to grab onto in their life. Our church should be that way. We're protecting the gospel from stain and from sin. We're above reproach. We're supposed to protect it from those who want to stain it or pollute it through their teaching and their living. Check this out. This is a picture of a a knight who's standing guard. I love that. That's supposed to be you. And when someone comes and challenges pure doctrine and wants to fight over the truth, we're supposed to say, it's go time. When someone comes and tries to change what Jesus wants to make of his followers, we're supposed to drop the gloves and say, it's going to be a brawl. When someone tries to divide up relationships and someone tries to bring foolish controversies into the church, we're not supposed to sit back. We're supposed to start swinging and we're supposed to fight our way back to peace. That's guarding the gospel. Heaven is watching. We've got to protect it from stain and from sin. Write this down, because Jesus will return soon. Next week's sermon is going to focus on the return of Christ. This is a cliffhanger ending. But Jesus is coming back. And because he's coming back, we're supposed to be getting ready to meet him.